0: Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the Cherokee people. That's right, the Cherokee people, uh, one of the largest Native American groups, uh, tribes, or nations um, in the United States today. And we're going to be looking a little bit about their history, their social structure. I just wanted to give a brief overview, um, kind of who they are as a people from the first contacts with Europeans to now. I did try to do a little bit of digging into like pre-European contact, like what the Cherokees were um, before. Uh, They ran into the Europeans, but that's very, very hard. Um, A lot of these Native American cultures have oral histories and stuff, and and a lot of it has been lost uh, for various reasons over the years. So I wanted to kick off this episode by saying OCO, which is hello in Cherokee. Okay, so let's kick things off with a little bit of Cherokee history from earliest contact with Europeans in the 1500s to the dawn of the 19th century, so the beginning of the 1800s, and I'm drawing like kind of a dividing point there because once you start getting into the early 19th century, things, there was a number of really rapid moving tumultuous events in the history of the Cherokee people that really changed things forever, but Let's start in the 1500s. Now, European exploration of the New World started With, hmm, let's see, with the Portuguese and the Spanish uh, coming over, uh, Portugal set up a colony in Brazil, the Spanish made it to the Caribbean, and then uh, Middle, uh, Mesoamerica, so like Central America, stuff like that, Uh, but there were Spanish explorers who started exploring the lands that would eventually become the United States. Some of the sources I used for this episode are uh, the history section of the official Cherokee Nation website, as well as Encyclopedia Britannica and a lot of other sources as well. Now according to the official Cherokee history, uh, they record that their first European contact was in 1540 with Hernando de Soto, and he was a Spanish explorer and he was mapping out the southeastern portion of what is now the United States. Um, So places like Florida and Georgia and stuff like that. Originally, the Cherokee name is uh, apparently derived from a Creek word meaning people of a different speech. Now, the Creek were a neighboring tribe. Um, There were a number of tribes that lived in the southeast when Europeans first showed up, Uh, most notably the Cherokee, the Creeks, the Choctaws, the uh, Seminoles, uh, people like that. Uh, Many Cherokees prefer to be known as Kituwa or Tsalagi. And at, let's say, the middle of the 17th century, so a few generations after first contact, they're believed to have numbered some 22,500 people. Uh, That's from Encyclopedia Britannica. And their ancestral lands are believed to uh, have been comprised of 40,000 square miles, i.e. 100,000 square kilometers of the Appalachian Mountains in parts of uh, what is now Georgia, Eastern Tennessee, and Western parts of what is now North Carolina and South Carolina. So very much uh, a mountain people. Traditional Cherokee life um, was similar to those of their neighbors. So like the Creeks and the Choctaws and stuff like that. The Cherokee Nation was essentially a Confederacy Uh, of different, um, like, villages, okay? So, and a confederacy of native peoples is not a new thing and it's not unique to this area. Um, Far to the north, like in the colonial period of, you know, upstate New York and uh, the French and Indian War and stuff like that, you did have the Iroquois Confederacy um, and their ancestral lands are upstate New York and the Iroquois Confederacy was uh, people like the Mohawks, uh, the Oneida, the Seneca, people like that, and it's just interesting if, if I could draw a parallel. The Iroquois people, uh, Cherokees are North American uh, natives of Iroquoian lineage, and when you look at things like Iroquoian or Algonquian or Algonquin, these are like language families. These are people that are culturally similar uh, in many ways. And I don't know if it's an imperfect comparison, but it almost makes me think of a language family in the style of old Europe. So, uh, you know, Dutch and Germans are different peoples, you know, with different dialects, but their their languages belong to the same language family, and they have a lot of shared cultural traditions. So I, I think maybe that's an accurate comparison. One of the super interesting things about the Cherokee Nation is that they had two chiefs: they had a war chief and a peace chief. And the Confederacy um, was comprised of villages that were symbolically either red or white, uh, depending on whether the situation was war or peace. When, when the Cherokee first encountered these Spanish explorers, uh, again, Hernando de Soto was just one of them, they had... Um, They had the technology to make stone implements, so they would like chip flint and stuff like that and they would have knives, axes, chisels, spearheads and stuff made of sharpened stone. They knew how to make baskets, uh, pottery, and they cultivated corn, beans, and squash. And again, that is not unusual at all for North American native peoples, like uh, again the Iroquois Confederacy to the north. Um, these three crops were so important that they were called the Three Sisters. And it was actually pretty cool the way that they would almost like symbiotically plant and grow and harvest them together. Now, what do I mean by this? Is like, you would have the corn that grows straight up, and then the squash on the ground, which provides a little bit of ground cover, and the corn stalks provided um, like a vertical support for the beans to grow up. So it's like each of the three crops would in some way support. And I guess whether they knew it or not, um, it was good for the soil, like the different vitamins and stuff like that. Uh, But they didn't just eat vegetables and and plant matter and stuff like that. Like they also hunted deer, uh, bear and elk. And they used the hides and furs and bones and and stuff of these animals to also make like clothing and and useful implements. How did they live? So Cherokee uh, houses were essentially bark roofed uh cabins made of logs uh they didn't have windows they only had one door and there was a smoke hole in the roof and i think it's a really good thing they did that because like can you imagine that thing filling up the smoke all the time but a typical cherokee village um had between 30 and 60 of these houses and like there was also a really special house called a council house Uh, Where they would hold meetings and there was a sacred fire that I guess was kind of maybe the spiritual center of the village that burned in this like special lodge. Um, They did have, you know, obviously religious ceremonies and stuff, uh, especially tied to the spring and the fall harvest. So that's kind of like the situation. um, What they were like when... They first encountered Europeans, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. The 18th century bore witness to an increasing. Uh, let's see, development of friction and conflict, but also integration and cooperation with the new European settlers who are arriving in the area. That is to say, originally it was uh, English, uh, Scots, and Irish, but over the course of the 18th century, as we know, the British colonies eventually became the United States now of the 13 colonies uh if you know your history the southernmost official uh one of these was georgia like the original 13 colonies like the southernmost one was georgia like florida wasn't uh wasn't a thing yet essentially so according to the cherokee history the first treaty between the british and the cherokee nation was in 1725 with the cherokee nation Uh, Quote, being recognized as inherently sovereign through those nation-to-nation agreements. So as part of the official Cherokee history on their website, they uh, stress that these were treaties between two sovereign nations and not between, you know, an imperial power and like a conquered people. And and that makes a lot of sense, you know, because, you know, in the early 18th century, the British didn't have nearly enough infrastructure or armed force or whatever in this area of the north american continent to push the cherokee around Um, the first half of the 18th century in north america was a period of intense competition between the british and the french Uh, yes the spanish were involved in the southwest and stuff like that but the main conflict was between New England and New France and it mirrored the conflict between Old England and Old France. So you had a series of uh, colonial wars and the biggest and most influential One of these was the French and Indian War, which was 1754 to 1763. Now, what had happened was there was a big war that broke out in Europe called the Seven Years War. And I've actually explained this in a previous episode uh, in the history of the United States. But the North American theater of the Seven Years War, which was a European conflict, but it spilled over onto the colonies, the North American theater of this war called the french and indian war and that's traditionally how it's referred to in american history like it might be a little bit different in native history or like let's say in canadian history or stuff like that but the reason why it's called that is because these were the two people that the american colonists were fighting actually i shouldn't even really say american because they were still british colonists british subjects subjects to the crown at the time and they were fighting the uh french uh, and the indians so the Europeans were divided and fighting each other, and the natives in the north on the North American continent were also divided and fighting each other. Um, the natives were by no means united in these colonial conflicts. Uh, again, you know, like if you want a good uh, reference point for this, I always recommend the film *Last of the Mohicans*. Uh, if you want to see what it was like to live in those colonies and a representation of the kind of um, shadowy musket and tomahawk style of warfare that was uh predominant during the french and indian war um, long story short a lot of european soldiers european regulars came over here and they found that the style of fighting that was popular in europe like volley fire in an open field just did not apply to native skirmishers in dark woods anyway <laughs> so the point i was trying to make is the natives themselves were also divided some of them allied with the french Uh, most notably like the Huron peoples, and uh, some of them allied with the British. And during the French and Indian War, the Cherokee people sided with the British Crown. And this continued until, as a result, one of the many results of their support in this war is they owed a lot of money uh, to the British Crown. So in 1773, the Cherokee and the Creek peoples in the southeast um, essentially were like forced or strong-armed by the uh, British Crown to cede more than two million acres in Georgia through the Treaty of Augusta uh, to kind of pay off some of their their debts. Um, This article doesn't really say like how they incurred those debts but I imagine it's like massive trade imbalance with the British so like maybe the Cherokee were getting all sorts of manufactured goods and black powder and uh, black powder weapons and, and stuff like that. The reason why I bring up this treaty in 1773, which is right before the outbreak of the American Revolutionary War, which would start only two short years later in 1775, is because it's like part of this long, it's so unfortunate, this long series of treaties where some power you know either the british crown or eventually the new american government makes promises to the cherokee people and then they break those promises and then they take more and more and more land and kind of the cherokee are left in a position of like do do we violently resist or do we accept this or you know this or that um so here we are now on the eve of the American Revolutionary War, so we're in the final, let's say, quarter of the 18th century, and the time and place is the Southeastern United States. So... What did the Cherokee Nation do during the American Revolutionary War? You know, it's funny. Now, after reading and listening to a bunch of podcasts, I'm always careful to say the American Revolutionary War as opposed to the American Revolution because for a lot of historians, it's like, yes, there's a difference between the political process of creating a new nation and the actual nuts and bolts of this military conflict between British regulars, British skirmishers, militia, and, you know, american patriot regulars continental army uh, stuff like that but uh, just a little bit of trivia for you so during the american revolutionary war the cherokee nation sided with the british crown you know becoming de facto loyalists and they did this because the leadership at the top Uh, They believed that the British Crown was more likely to support their existing land rights and their existing boundaries. Essentially, they didn't want to take a chance on a new, rough-and-ready, untested government. Um, And they saw that, like, the British Crown being across the sea was just more likely to stand up for their interests rather than settlers and colonists who lived right next door and might, you know, figuratively speaking, look over the fence and be like, hmm, I wonder if I could take those pasture lands or, or that, uh, that valuable land over there or, or this pond or this creek or whatever. In 1775, the Overhill Cherokee, they signed a treaty in Kentucky. Uh, it was called the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals and they sold an enormous amount of land to this company called the Transylvania uh, Land Company. And it's just funny, like Transylvania. No, it has nothing to do with vampires. Uh, In Latin, trans just means, like, across, and sylvania, like sylvan, sylvania, means forest. So it's, anyway, whatever. So I just wanted to point that out, because it's not like they were selling their land to vampires. Um, Apparently, under British law at the time, like, you you couldn't, like, natives couldn't sell their land to private companies. But uh, they went ahead and did it anyway. And this treaty, which was, like, technically illegal, formed the basis of a future kind of land rights, land claims, and, and kind of how the land would be divided by subsequent waves of settlers. When the American uh, Revolutionary War started, this private land company um, was a, uh, a patriot company. Like, they, they threw their support in with the rebels. Uh, the reason why I'm bringing up this treaty in 1775 is because during the American Revolution, there's a lot of conflict for the Cherokee peoples. So, they were armed and equipped by the British Crown and they fought for the British crown, and what we see is a rapid-fire series of treaties, okay, where the Cherokee just lose like more and more land and villages and people and stuff like that. So, you know, if you're a gambling man, like that, the American Revolutionary War was not a good time for the Cherokee people, like they came out significantly. Uh, weaker than when they started if for no other reason that when the dust cleared and the war was over like their supporter the british crown was gone um so this first one the treaty of sycamore shoals in kentucky 1775 um there were all sorts of uh cherokee warriors in the southern colonies um that would fight with the native um sorry with the american uh regulars and militia and stuff like that and it was pretty vicious back and forth like this was classic colonial frontier warfare, where it's like you would have war parties on either side. And a lot of these like isolated homesteads, typically poor people from Europe who, you know, you get to the new world and all the best land on the coast is taken. So you have to penetrate the frontier. Where you have to dig rocks out of the soil and you have to chop down trees, but you're also much more vulnerable to attack from hostile natives. Now, disclaimer you know, in the history of colonial America, not all Native American tribes were actually hostile. Like a lot of them were either neutral, like they would leave and move further inland, or they would actually like cooperate and trade with settlers, stuff like that. But by the, uh, as the war went on, Cherokee Nation in the South was devastated by these like American attacks and they had to sue for peace and according to this peace arrangement they gave up huge amounts of their territory in North and South Carolina and that was the Treaty of DeWitt's Corner May 20th 1777 and the Treaty of Long Island of Holston July 1777 so even just like in the summer of 1777 they lost a ton of stuff a lot of land they were at peace uh, during the American Revolutionary War for two years, but then it, it actually flared up again. I, you know, I guess the Cherokee, like the article I'm reading here, is in 1780 they started going to war again because they were trying to seize an opportunity. Uh, at the time, the American forces were busy fighting British forces. Uh, elsewhere, now there were colonial counterattacks, and the Second Treaty of the Long Island of Holston, which was July 26, 1781, pretty much solidified previous uh, sessions of land like that they had lost, uh, and forced them to give up even more territory. So it's just, it's just crazy, like how much territory they had to give in. Um, I don't know i guess a really simplistic reading of history would be like they bet on the wrong side but you know when the war started like nobody expected the american settlers to win like they were going to war with the most powerful nation on earth with the most powerful navy on earth and the british government poured vast sums of money into defending the colonies uh trying to save the colonies and stuff like that so uh i don't really blame the cherokee for picking the british crown and it's like i said before right like They were like, okay, we can deal with this power that has an established track record or who knows what these colonists are going to do like when when the war is over and they no longer have anybody to report to across the sea. So that's kind of the history of the Cherokee peoples. Uh, I wanted to kind of sketch it out over the course of the 18th century, so the 1700s and kind of transition and work our way into the 19th century. The years of the early 19th century were a time of rapid integration and assimilation of aspects of colonial society into that of the Cherokee Nation um, for their own benefit. So the Cherokee started adapting to the ways of their neighbors. They formed a tribal government that was modeled on that of the United States, they adopted colonial ways of farming the land, weaving, building houses. They created an alphabet, um, and a fancy word for this is called a syllabary. Um, it's a way of writing down your language. And they developed a unique alphabet for the Cherokee language. Uh, many Cherokees started sending their kids to missionary schools to learn English. Um, there were even a few Cherokees who started owning uh, slaves like African-American slaves that had been brought over from across the sea or, you know, traded from other colonies and stuff like that. The Cherokee Nation translated uh, the Christian scriptures, started publishing some of their own stories and legends in their own language, and they published their first newspaper, which was called the Cherokee Phoenix, a started publication in February of 1828. Now, the big thing that happened during this time period, uh-oh, gold was discovered on Cherokee lands. So, in 1828, near Dahlonega, Georgia, the uh, there were a few prospectors that discovered gold. And, oh, jeez, that's kind of the classic story of... Uh, American expansion into the West is like they're not interested in this plot of land in X, Y, or Z county or territory or whatever until you know they discover like gold uh, or silver or oil or something like that. So this gold rush actually on Cherokee lands in the early 19th century is actually one of the first recorded gold rushes in American history. Um, this predates you know the California gold rush of. 1849 or anything like that so within a few years they were essentially pushed to the negotiating table with the u.s government so they thought that one of the reasons why the chiefs were so eager to kind of adopt european ways or western ways or american ways was uh they thought it would protect their society and their culture but unfortunately that didn't happen. In December of 1835, there was a treaty called the Treaty of New Echota or Echota, I'm not sure. But it was only signed by a small minority of the Cherokee people. But what it did is it gave to the United States, well, not gave, but sold to the United States all the Cherokee land east of the Mississippi River. Like, so we've seen in previous treaties, remember when I started the episode, like their traditional homeland was the highlands of Kentucky, uh, western North Carolina, western South Carolina, Georgia, stuff like that. By 1835, that's all gone. Like, all of that. Sold to the U.S. government for the sum of $5 million. Like, that's not really a lot, even even then. Um, apparently, the story goes that, like, the overwhelming uh, majority of the tribal members were not okay with this, and they rejected the treaty, and they... Um, took it uh, all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And unbelievably, <laughs> the Supreme Court actually gave a decision that favored the Cherokee people, saying that the state of Georgia had no jurisdiction over the Cherokee and no claim to their traditional lands, which is, which is, wow. Now, unfortunately, the officials from Georgia, like the state officials, just promptly ignored that Supreme Court decision. Um, and President Andrew Jackson refused to enforce the Supreme Court decision and just went ahead and Congress in 1830 passed the Indian Removal Act uh, to basically force everybody that was left in those lands out. Um, And it's very, very sad, it's a very dark chapter of American history um, and historians have called it the Trail of Tears. So let's take a look at the Trail of Tears. Okay, let's talk about the Trail of Tears. So here we are in the 1830s, gold is discovered in Georgia. There was the Treaty of New Echota, which again was not supported by the majority of the Cherokee Nation. You have President Andrew Jackson with the Indian Removal Act, stuff like that. Uh, 7,000 troops under General Winfield Scott, who will pop up a generation later in the Civil War, forced the Cherokees uh, in places like the Carolinas in Georgia, basically forced them to move west. Uh, As many as 16,000 Cherokee were actually forced west as part of this kind of process. There were overland detachments of about 1,000 each. um, And this was accomplished, again, through this massive logistical operation on behalf of the U.S. Army. But, critically, it was not handled well. Like, at all. It was an eviction forced march, and it happened during the fall and winter of 1838... Uh, to 39. Now, first of all, why would you move these people in the fall and winter? Like, I get it. It's the South. Like, how how cold could it possibly get? But anyway, Congress had, like, put aside money for this operation, but it was badly mismanaged, uh, either through incompetence or corruption. And there wasn't enough food, shelter, clothing. Uh, the trail just cost the the native people's almost everything they had either because they just couldn't handle it and had to throw their things away uh it's estimated that you know up to a quarter of them straight up died like of the sixteen thousand. not to mention the additional thousands who survived the journey but were either crippled or sick or just anything like anything that has afflicted them uh the journey was 116 days and the troops that were like escorting them uh, the whole way refused to stop or slow down for people, again, that were, like, sick or dead or anything, whatever. The place that they were going to was northeastern Oklahoma. And um, Oklahoma, even today, is really, really big uh, in the kind of culture of the Cherokee. Like, it's a huge part of the, the modern entity that's called the Cherokee Nation. And I'm going to get to that at the end, like kind of you know how many Cherokees are left, and you know roughly where do they live or whatever. But that's kind of the story. Like after the Trail of Tears, they get to Oklahoma Territory, which um, they weren't the only Native group to be sent there. There were there were lots of other groups that were removed from the southeast again, like the Creek people and the uh, the Choctaw and uh, the. Uh, what are Creeks, the Choctaws, some of the Seminoles, uh, and the Chickasaw people, I believe, is the last one, because there's like five key tribes that lived in that area. Anyway, so they get to uh, Oklahoma Territory, and they try to make the best of a bad situation. And yeah, they start setting up uh, roads and schools and, and stuff like that. There were several groups that kind of there were groups that like not all of them were forced to go like some of them fled a little bit to the north or or whatever and to this day uh not all of the modern cherokees uh today live in oklahoma territory but A huge amount of them do so they they set up this new Cherokee Constitution uh, on September 6 1839 and that's actually like the seal when you go to like the Cherokee Nation website there's like the great seal of the Cherokee Nation and has a date on it and like that's the date Uh, that's kind of like the official starting date of like the modern Cherokee Nation so yeah they they set up you know a newspaper schools businesses all sorts of stuff just you know making a living in this new home of Oklahoma territory uh this is this would be the 1830s 40s 50s and there's a really big thing that happens in American history in the 1860s called the American Civil War um and just like briefly speaking uh, a, a lot of Cherokees during the like the Cherokee Nation was was kind of split uh by this issue of slavery and the issue of the Civil War. Now, according to the Cherokee Nation website, they say that the Cherokee Nation uh, obviously was not technically part of the United States, but it was forced to take sides. Two thirds of Cherokee men fought on the side of the Union, while another third was actively part of the Confederate effort. Uh, Some Cherokee actually did have slaves, uh, but I don't think that was a majority. There was a a fort kind of on the Indian territory that was abandoned early in the war. So after that point, the uh, principal chief Ross, this guy John Ross, like he was like one of the high chiefs of the Cherokee people, uh, threw in his support for the Confederacy. So it's interesting that like the numbers of Cherokee warriors who fought on either side were not equal, but like officially, like the official stance of the Cherokee Nation was they were Confederate. Um, When the Union ended up winning the Civil War, the Cherokee Nation signed their last treaty with the U.S., and it's called the Treaty of 1866, which had like a few punitive measures in it, like uh, measures designed to punish them. For the next hundred years, from roughly the 1860s to the 1960s, The Cherokee Nation uh, in Oklahoma just kind of like did its own thing. I think there was a process of slow decline because uh, up until Oklahoma gained statehood, each tribe in the Oklahoma Territory had like an allotment of land and they had like a semi-autonomous government that was like modeled on the American system. But uh, when Oklahoma became a state in 1907, um, that land was kind of chopped up and given to like individual private members. And the people of the Cherokee Nation became Oklahoma citizens, uh, like citizens of the state. Uh, A lot of their infrastructure was like dissolved and stuff and and, like absorbed into like the state model. Um, So what we see is like the culmination of this is According to Britannica, tribal governments were were effectively dissolved in 1906, but, you know, kind of existed in a limited form. According to the Cherokee uh, Nation website, this kind of started to turn around in the 1960s, actually uh, in parallel with the civil rights struggle in the United States of Black people. So, like, in the United States in the 60s, very tumultuous time, you know, you've got, like, the Vietnam protests, JFK gets shot. Actually, JFK wasn't even the only public official, you know, Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King and stuff like that. Uh, but it was a very tumultuous time. And part of that struggle uh, was this this push for Native American rights. So there was um, a little bit of, a, of an upswing in kind of what the Cherokee Nation were doing on their own lands. So they passed something called the Principal Chiefs Act of 1970. And that uh, kind of opened the door, opened some channels for the Cherokee Nation to once again have their own government and uh, popularly elect tribal officials, so they could start like electing their own people. In 1971, the first Cherokee Nation election took place, uh, and that was the first one in nearly 70 years. So you know, more definitely more than a single generation. And they had a new constitution that was ratified in 1975. So that's kind of the situation that we're in now. Um, you know, like you had that that century after the Civil War, which was kind of like just getting by, just trying to survive Oklahoma statehood in 1907, and that changed things too. And again, you know, Cherokees in the years leading up to the 1960s, like if you look at the first half of the 20th uh, century, uh, yes, uh, a bunch of them went to go fight in World War One. A bunch of them went to go fight in uh, World War II, and it's just sad that like they went back to America, and, and despite having fought equally for the country, we're not treated equally. But anyway, whatever. That's my soapbox. Uh, so we have that situation where it's like now it kind of rebounded in the 60s and 70s, and today, according um, to the uh, Cherokee Nation website, they say the Cherokee Nation is the largest tribe in the United States, with more than. 390,000 tribal citizens worldwide. More than 141,000 of those live within the tribe's reservation boundaries in uh, northeastern Oklahoma. So, so a big chunk. Now that's kind of interesting too because like, according to Britannica, which is like another source, they say early 21st century population estimates indicated more than 730,000 individuals of Cherokee descent living across the United States. Now that's a huge, huge difference and I tried to do some digging It's uh, the reason why the numbers are so wildly divergent is because like it depends how you define a Cherokee, right? Like if you define a Cherokee as someone that's either full or half, so both parents or one parent is a Cherokee, like you get one number. But then if you define it as someone is a Cherokee, if they have one grandparent, like out of four, then it's like obviously you get a much larger, larger number. Um, From what I've read, uh, this is not like set in stone, I have read that one of the reasons why the Cherokee have so many people today is they're a little more open with their criteria as to like what constitutes membership in the tribe and like what constitutes Cherokee status. Um, But that's interesting too. Like, uh, and again, I did a brief look of, uh, yeah, so like what are the biggest native groups in North America today? And apparently. Yeah, the Cherokee is the most populous, and the second most numerous uh, native peoples in the United States are the Navajo. Like, they have a huge amount of territory out west, and they've, you know, maybe weathered uh, contact with the American government a little better than some other groups. And the third, apparently, is the the Cree peoples, like the different Cree peoples that live in the northern United States and Canada. So that's kind of the situation uh, as it is today, and, um, you know, they, they still according to this website, the Cherokee nation has approximately 11,000 employees and they're one of the biggest employers in Northeastern Oklahoma. Um, Their impact on the Oklahoma economy in the fiscal year 2018 was $2.16 billion. Uh, They have their own hunting and fishing rights. They have their own schools. Their language is still, um, in use like their their written language and stuff like that do you remember that uh that newspaper i mentioned called the cherokee phoenix uh founded in uh, the 1820s yeah that's still around (laughs) so very interesting stuff Well, that's all I have today to talk about the Cherokee people. I hope you learned something. I hope it was fun and informative. I tried to give a brief outline of some of the critical events in their history. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. I looked up how to say goodbye in Cherokee. Uh, now, apparently there isn't like a straight up simple word for goodbye. Uh, their phrase for saying uh, goodbye is until we meet again. Kind of like in French when you say au revoir, like it means like until I see you again. And in Cherokee, Dona da e is uh, what they say. And it means till we meet again. So Dona da gohan-e. Uh, to you, my listeners. <laughs> this has been Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bite sized history podcast at gmail.com. And once again, thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye.